Hi, welcome to the Behind the Balance Sheet podcast, where we meet leading investors and commentators and educate ourselves about the world of investing and the world. Our mission is to remove some of the mystique around investing and improve our understanding of what makes a successful investment or indeed an unsuccessful one. Our goal is to inform, educate and entertain. We hope you enjoy this and every episode. Behind the balance sheet and affiliates and podcast guests may own shares or have an economic interest in securities discussed in this podcast, which is aired for your education and entertainment only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment advice or relied upon for investment decisions. Always do your own research. This podcast is sponsored by Stream by OfficeSense. I'm still getting used to the platform, but so far I'm impressed with how easy it is to use. Before Stream, when I was at the hedge funds, tapping into expert perspectives was time consuming and costly. Identifying experts, coordinating schedules, preparing questions, running the interview, and transcribing notes. All this could take hours, while not even being sure of the quality I would receive. With Stream, there's a library of over 20,000 expert calls and transcripts. No time spent organizing, immediate and unlimited access, no hassle. For institutional analysts, this is a game changer. I like it because first, the platform intuitively understands what I'm looking for. Stocks are tagged, so you can get qualitative insights directly, not just from company executives and competitors, but also from suppliers and customers. Second, the calls so far have been high quality, qualified experts and good questions from real analysts. Third, its library is going quickly with dozens of new transcripts added every day. I was surprised that the selections for the first stock I picked was just a mid-cap. Stream by OfficeSense looks like a great addition to any analytical toolkit. Visit streamrg.com forward slash BTBS for more details. This podcast is intended to educate and entertain, but we also have a more serious purpose. We support the Financial Times financial literacy charity. Check it out on ft.com forward slash F-L-I-C. It's the most disadvantaged in society who get taken in by financial scams, by payday loans, and similar artful devices designed to part people from their money. We can change this. It's a straightforward task of education. This is a great cause, and I urge you, please, to support it. Vitaly Katzenelson is a Russian-born investor and writer. In this fascinating and wide-ranging discussion, we talk about wealth preservation in the 2020s, why it will be different from previous decades, and how he thinks stock picking will be key to preserving wealth. We discuss how, in turbulent markets, he dampens the volatility of his client's blood pressure by regular and clear communication. How he doesn't look for clients but allows them to find him because he thinks having the right clients is key to success in any investment firm. And we talk about his life philosophy as set out in his latest book, Soul in the Game. We also talk about why scarcity is the key to a happy and fulfilled life. And you'll learn what I have in common with General Stanley McChrystal. Vitaly's life philosophy reveals a wisdom beyond his years and his positive attitude can improve anyone's life. We spend less time on investing than in some previous episodes, but it really was enjoyable. And my friends at Harriman House are offering 30% of Vitaly's book, 
and indeed my book, The Smart Money Method, until the 31st December, visit their website and use the code BTBS30. Vitaly, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So look, let's start by talking about how you got into investing, because that's how we always start. And it's very interesting. So many of the guests, their entry into investing was completely serendipitous. Tell us about how you ended up the boss of IMA. Sure. Um, it is, I guess I would, I would argue I had the same kind of experience. It was serendipity and luck. So I was born in Russia and, uh, and I moved to the United States in 1991. I was 18 years old. And I had no idea what I wanted to do when I kind of grow up. So I went to college. And in college, I tried six or seven different majors and couldn't really find the one I liked. And then I got a job at an investment firm. And they hired me uh, because of my computer skills. And at the same time, I was taking a finance class. Uh, and this kind of serendipity between me taking a finance class and work investment firm, I started to discuss what I learned at school, at work, and started to have a lot of interesting conversations with portfolio managers. This is where I realized, oh my God, actually, this is something very interesting to me. And at that point, it's like this, I had this aha moment, like this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I changed my major for the last time to finance, got my graduate, you know, undergraduate degree in finance, graduate degree in finance, CFA, and basically kind of focused on uh been in this, you know, kind of doing investing for the rest of my life. Now I got this job, this is kind of interesting story. So the firm I worked for before, uh, they did not need another analyst. So I had to look for another place to work. And so this is 1997. I want you to remember, this is before the internet, kind of. Like the internet was there, but not really. So I literally opened Yellow Pages. Yeah, that was the time of Yellow Pages and faxed my resume to every single firm in Denver. Like it took me, I don't know, three or four days to do this, but I kind of just just send one fax at a time. And this firm, uh, the analyst who was working here before me, she left and they did not even post a job online yet. I mean, on the newspaper. So I was competing against nobody because they, so I, they, you know, as, as I've been told after the fact, I was the only person who was in, you know, who was interviewed for this job, and so I do very well in competitions when I can when I compete against nobody. So I won, <laughs> and uh, and that's how I got the job. So this was 1987. Today's uh, 2022. So that was 25 years ago. So I started here as an analyst. Then uh, over time, transitioned to portfolio manager. Then uh, then CIO, and now I'm a CEO and owner of IMA. Fantastic. And you're, I mean, it's a big firm, right? You've got several hundred million dollars in, in management. Well, big, well, big as, you know, we manage about $350 million. So big as, uh, you know, the relative world, but uh, more than this, you know, universe. But, you know, it's a, it's a we are a good firm. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I don't look at how big we are. I look how good we are. And I would argue we are a good firm. So that's more important to me than the size. Well, I, I, I'm sure you are. But I was fascinated to read in your book, which we'll come to later, that you aren't even the top in the top 20 in Denver. I mean, that seems extraordinary. You, you've got that size. Um, we may actually, it's kind of, it's, to be honest, I'm not even sure anymore. We may be, but I just, I, I stopped looking. All right. um, 
And this, is, this is a, a difficult business, isn't it? Because I did a spell where I used to advise a large wealth manager in, in the UK mm-hmm. and I used to help them pick international equities because they had a lot of experience in the UK, but they wanted to go more overseas. And I then started running or helping them run some money. So it was technically run by somebody else. But I picked the stocks and it was really difficult because everybody had a different portfolio. And so you know, when you're successful, more people want to give you money, but the stocks that you picked for the first people aren't necessarily the stocks you pick for the next. Do you have a model portfolio that yeah. everybody follows? How does it work? You're asking a good question. So yeah, so the what we do, every portfolio is customized for the client. But there's a when I when I say this, it sounds a little bit I'm overstating the case a little bit. So let me let me kind of peel the layers of that. Okay, so when a person comes to us, we ask him, "Would you like to be?" We have two products, are not the right two strategies. Yeah. We have a dividend. Uh, we have a kind of our active value strategy, which is kind of traditional value strategy, active value strategy, and then we have a dividend strategy, which is a similar strategy to the first one, except now we, you know, we also want to we want to buy stocks that pay you know a significant dividend. Okay, um, so once people they make this choice, they also tell us about if they have any kind of restrictions, like meaning some people don't want to own, um, uh, I don't know, like a tobacco stocks or sure. energy stocks. So so they have this kind of restrictions. And then finally, when we buy stocks for them, we only buy stocks that are still undervalued. So this is an important point. This is where customization happens. A lot of customization happens. Let's say we bought a stock, which we think is worth $100. And six months ago, we bought it when, when it was at $40. And let's say now it's at $80. So if the stock has doubled and it's still not at the fair value. So if there's, we're still holding it, we might have reduced the position a little bit. Okay. So when the new account comes in, we would not buy that stock for this for new for new client. Um, and we would buy some other stocks. So a lot of times what would happen, new new clients' portfolios would look different from the accounts that just started with us. Let's say you have two clients with, 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 uh, without any restrictions and the same strategy, but they come to us even two weeks apart or six months apart, all their portfolios will look different. And the amount of cash, this is a very important point, the amount of cash they have will, will be different as well. Over time, these portfolios will look similar, more and more yeah. similar over time, but in the beginning, they're going to look very different. And this is actually, like, this has helped us tremendously over the last six months because, like, we had, you know, we we were not buying into stocks that were fairly, you know, kind of undervalued, but not as undervalued. And so now we can buy them a lot cheaper. So, uh, yes. Can you talk a little bit? Because, I mean, 60-40 has been the sort of staple diet for wealth managers here, RIAs in the U.S. And it isn't going to work any longer. I mean, it's not been working this year, obviously, and it seems unlikely that it will work for for several years. Well, what's your view on that? I think it was a kind of a mindless strategy from the 90s. And what I mean by this, because when you had a normal environment where the bond market was kind of, when the interest rates were more or less of free market rates, then the strategy worked fine, right? Because the bonds at the time provided, I don't know, six, you know, um, the inf- inflation plus, you know, three, you know, three, you know, three, three percent or something. 
Um, well, the interest rates and also the strategy had worked well because interest rates have been declining for the last 30 years. Now, I think the environment we are facing in today is that the interest rates may not be may not be declining for a long time. I mean, I, I'm not talking about next six months, but I'm talking about long term. And therefore, you mindlessly buying bonds because you used to buy up because because you, you know you're supposed you are this age and this age you're supposed to be at this strategy. I think it's very dangerous. And I would argue that there will be time to own bonds, but I don't think this is the time right now. Again, like you know the rates may decline in the next six months from this point on. I, don't, I have no idea what they're gonna do. But I, I would argue that the uh, if you did this, you know, if you if you, if you basically, uh, by the way, I would have told you the same thing if you and I talked a year ago. Yeah. Sure. So, but yeah. So, uh, if you follow the strategy, I think it's probably not going to work well for some time. At some point, there will be time for it again. So, what's the alternative? Are you hundred percent equities, or are, are just more than sixty? I mean, this is like. You know, I'm. I hate to be the like when I when I answer this question, I feel this guilt because I don't have a good answer, like really don't. And I and the and the, so the because the answer I have is very inefficient answer, and the answer is basically you have a barbell strategy, you for you you basically want to have your enough savings. Let's say if you are in your sixties, or you want to have enough cash that for next five years, and you you put this cash into something, I don't know, like six months to one year treasuries, something riskless, basically. Yeah. It's it's not going to keep up with today's inflation. Don't get me wrong. But it's going to pay your bills and you won't have to rely on the um, on the whims of the stock market. And then what that does, it buys you time horizon to invest in, you know, in a kind of undervalued individual stocks. But all you, but it's it, it's again it's a not the most efficient portfolio, right? Because you are that you know you, when you buy you know, six uh, uh, one year bond, uh, six months or one year bonds, you are getting three three and a half percent returns when inflation is much higher than that. Yeah. But that's but you that portion of your money is there just to buy you peace of mind. So you know when the when stocks go up and down. You are not forced to sell stocks when they're you know, when they're low, so you can pay for your daughter's wedding or whatever. No, absolutely, and the daughter's weddings can be very expensive. I um I, I I know that. And you espouse individual stocks. I mean, a lot of RIAs in the U.S. favor ETFs, and they favor like a, an index strategy, and maybe add in a factor ETF, a momentum ETF, or whatever. I had on the podcast two months ago a guy called Richard Oldfield, who's a very skilled investment manager who wrote a book called Simple But Not Easy. And he likened investing in the index to hanging on to the coattails of a lunatic. He said, look, the more the stock goes up, the more you own of it. And that can't be a sensible strategy. And I, I mean, I completely agree with them that anybody can invest in the stock market. You don't. You do need to have a bit of discipline. You do need to understand a little bit about what you're doing. But it's not. It's not a complicated thing. It's. It's not easy to manage. But it's. It's fairly simple. I mean, do you use a lot of ETFs? Do you agree with that single stocks are are, are the way to go? And do you think it, it it's possible for individuals to embrace individual stocks? I mean, what, what's your what's your thinking? 
I think it's extremely easy to invest in a stock market. I don't think it's very easy to do it well. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's point number one. And I agree that the way the most ETFs are structured is that you know the most you know the most successful the company the larger the company. Like think about it. If I apply the strategy in our portfolios, my comp- my new clients would be basically be buying the largest position that we hold in accounts that came to us. You know that six months ago or a year ago, three years ago. So I would argue that this is not like this is not a strategy that actually benefits clients. I think ETFs, you know, so I think ETFs are, are dangerous, could be dangerous because they look so safe. Because they they could be dangerous because they could be dangerous because they look so safe because everybody thinks that you're buying a diversified investment. Therefore, you can blow up on that. Well, you can because if you if you if this investment when if I buy in this investment, you're buying a lot of overvalued companies, then yes, you get a, you, you you do get diversification on a individual company risk, but you don't you're diversified against you know the fact that these companies are all overvalued. Like it's if you if you owned Kathy Woods ETF, which is down um, the arc. It's I don't know how much it's down now, like down 50, 70, 80% from its high. She owned a lot of stocks in it, but they were all overvalued. So there was no safety in numbers because when you own a lot of overvalued stocks and market uh, and the valuation of the market declines, you get blown up. Um, so we, I am a believer that in analyzing, like I, the way we approach what we do here, um, like a, as if we were, a business person analyzing each company, if you were buying the whole company, and we ask yourself, do you want to be in this business? Do you, do you like the management who runs the business? And then we ask yourself, how much is this business worth? And not just the next six months, next five or 10 years. Okay. And then we say, well, how much uh, how much discount to what it's worth do, do we need uh, based on its risk? And that's how we approach building our portfolio uh, for each client. Yeah, I mean, Kathy Woods, uh, of course, a classic example. I mean, I don't know I would even classify. I mean, I know she technically it's an ETF, but I don't know I would classify it as a, as a, as a, as index type ETF because she owns such a style bias that it's not at all diversified. And of course, she's been the biggest buyer of all the stocks that she owns. And, um, you know, it might have done. I don't know how much it stands, 70, 80%. But if it doesn't fall another 70 or 80%, I'd be quite surprised, to be honest. But um, let me, let me, let me add one more point to this. I think ETFs could be a good tool if used wisely. But what has happened over the last decade, ETFs basically allow any person who used to be an insurance salesman to masquerade as an investment advisor, basically. And that's and that's what they do. Um, so uh, and people feel safe. People and give people this um, full safe of security because they feel like they've been diversified. And I would argue, as the uh, as the tide goes away, we'll find out that a lot of this, you know, people were swimming naked because they owned a lot of overvalued stocks. Well, I think the the issue is. I mean, my perception is that if we look at to twenty thirty two over the next ten or so years, it's highly unlikely to be like the last 10 years it's much more likely that in 2032 the market's done very little i mean it might go up a bit but you know everybody 
seems to be assuming that because the market's gone up at 8% for decades, that it'll go up 8% per annum this decade. And that's not what experience tells you, because when you start off from a period of high valuation and you go through a period of, in particularly an inflationary period, the stock market may not do anything. And we've seen that in past decades. And, um, you know, we've all got this of we're fixated on our recent experience. And it's also very difficult, I think, to go back in history from before when you were investing. But I've asked a number of people about what it was like to invest in the 1970s. Obviously, I'm too young to remember investing in the 1970s. Mm. And there are very few people around investing today who were investing in the 1970s. Very few. And people don't people have lost this sort of memory or they don't have the memory. And of course, what happened in the 1970s was the stock market didn't keep up with inflation overall. And you had to be in a particular type of stock in, in, in small cap volume in order to beat inflation. And it seems to me, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but that is a very plausible scenario for the next 10 years. I mean, would you would you disagree with that? Or You know, it's probably the biggest layup I've ever seen to... <laughs> to uh, to to my writing because I wrote two books on this subject, uh, the little book of sideways markets and active value investing, and both argue the same point you just made. The in, in fact, if you look, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, my 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 latest book, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, my latest investment book, the little book of sideways markets, came out in 2010, and I would argue that this book is more relevant today you know, than ever before, because I agree with 100%. What happens, and you you use the right words, you said recency bias. We look, we usually look in the past and we, especially if we have a lot of data points and we draw straight lines through those data points. You know, we, you know, you know but the problem is with stock market and the economy that there are some things that mean reverting. In other words, if they've done incredibly well, a lot of times there will be payback time for those things. One of those things is price earnings. When price earnings goes up and it goes from below average to above average, in the future, what happens, price earnings actually, you borrowed your future returns when price earnings went to above average. Yeah. And then when, when mean reversion happens, price earnings goes from above average through average to below average. And what that means, if you think about returns for stocks, I'm excluding dividends, just for simplicity of it, they come from two sources, earnings growth and change in price earnings. If you look over a hundred plus year period, the price earnings movements really kind of canceled out. Yeah. And what you got was earnings growth. And in the long run, earnings growth really kind of equated to GDP growth, okay? So, or economic growth, right? Now, when you, when you enter the market, when the price earnings at much above average, price earnings stops being your friend, actually, it becomes your enemy. Because when it declines, it actually subtracts the return you get from earnings growth. And I would also argue today, it's less like, it's very likely that the earnings growth for the economy is going to be less than it was, what, it, what it was over the last 10 years or last 20 years, especially in the real terms. Because of high inflation, we may still get out nominal earnings growth, but the real growth Will, uh, will probably going to be either flat or slightly positive, maybe even negative. So, um, so yes, I think we're going to be we are entered in a period of sideways markets. And uh, if you just own the market, you're going to get very little. 
this is why individual stock selection, uh, well, you know, stock picking becomes so paramount. Yeah, I mean, you were you were a bit early with the books. Well, it, yes and no, because I was the um, the active value investing. I started working in this 2005. We, when we, you know, and I think we, we were basically in this, arguably we were in the sideways markets until about six, seven years ago. And then we, and then we, as interest rates went to zero and to negative, we broke through the, you know, we kind of entered into bull market. Um, the issue is, um, like when I was writing these books, you know, and especially in 2010, I never thought the interest rates could go down to, can become negative. The concept of negative interest rates was, was, unfathomable to me because why would you give somebody money and then you agree to get less money at the end of six months or a year? It's a, that's this just makes no economic sense, etc. Et but we were, you know, we were at the negative interest rates for a while, and uh, and interest rates were at, you know near zero for a long period of time. So again, that's you know that's so that's basically why we went into bull markets. Yeah. Well. Um... <laughs> And it's been a very interesting. <laughs> it's been a very interesting few years. How do you keep your head um, when there's sort of madness all around? Um, it must be quite difficult when you're dealing with individuals who've entrusted their wealth to you, and they see their neighbors making out in GameStop or whatever, and you're keeping your feet on the ground and and having a you know, a rooting in in value. How how does how have you coped in the last few years? I mean, have you had pressure from your clients, or do they understand? I mean, how do you explain that to them? I think a key for investment firm success, any investment firm success in the long run, is having the right clients. And I've been fortunate that the way we market attracts the right clients. And let me explain how you market. It's very simple. It's a, there is no uh, mystery here. I write articles. People read these articles. They can relate to how we invest. They come to us. That's it. We don't make cold calls. We don't, I don't go to parties in country clubs. I hate, you know, this kind of things. It's, <laughs> and I, and um, the beauty of this, it's a kind of reverse self-selection. Our clients select us you know, and uh, and therefore they come to us because they want to grow and preserve their wealth. And they, I guess I would argue our clients probably have a lot less FOMO than, you know, clients of other firms. And that's, that's point number one. Point number two is communication. I mean, let me give you this analogy. Um, I had this client this in my, uh, had this client in my office and we were just chatting, and he used to be pilot, um, commercial pilot. And I was telling him how I'm afraid of flying. Like oh, I'm really? like, no, well, like, let me let me explain what I mean. I fly it all the time. So let me just put it this way: I have a fear of flying, but I fly all the time just because I'm. If you just think about, you are I don't know, fifty thousand feet in the air, and this thing can fall any time. Yeah, so I have this kind of kind of a, a very normal fear of flying. You know. I don't need to get medicated to get on the plane, et cetera. But, you know, I have this, you know, slight uneasiness when I fly. That uneasiness becomes less slight when I am in the air and we go through the turbulence. I become a little bit more religious during that point in time. Again, so there's, there's a two sides of it. There is a rational side of me who understands that planes don't crash 
in the midair. Most most uh, most uh, most accidents happen on the takeoff and landing. I I know all the statistics. I know all the statistics. That's the rational side of me. The emotional side of me, while in the turbulence, I am scared. So it's just it's, it's because I'm human. Okay. Now, so I was telling him about this, and he said, you know, Vitaly, it's kind of interesting. When I was flying, when I was in the cockpit, I was never afraid of anything. Now, when I'm a passenger and it goes through the turbulence, yeah, I get a little bit nervous too. And then I realized, this is kind of interesting. When he was in a cockpit, he had control. He had all the information you know, in front of him. Uh, when he's in a cabin, he doesn't have that. He's just another passenger. So I realized my job as a money manager is not just being in the cockpit is not good and is not enough. I have to bring my clients as close as possible to cockpit without giving them the control and communicate to them as clearly as possible how what I see and how we are and how we are adjusting to the environment we are going into. And so therefore, my job is not really reduce volatility of my client's portfolio, but reduce the volatility of their blood pressure. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, anyway, so that's that's so you ask me how we get through these times. That's how we get through these times: right clients and communication. And I would argue, sensible strategy. Yes, of course. If you enjoy this podcast, you're bound to enjoy our free newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly email on interesting investing topics. Visit behindthebalancesheet.com and hit the sign up button. While you're there, you might want to check out our brilliant online investor training school. Hundreds of students have taken our flagship Analyst Academy course, which teaches you everything you need to become a serious equity investor. And if you're a professional investor, we run a forensic accounting course for institutional clients and soon a cohort-based course for serious amateurs. Email us at info at behindthebalancesheet.com. So you, um, in the book, you talk about a trainer who works 20 hours a week and lives in a small flat. And you talk about your spending habits and how you spend on health, on experience, on, on experiences, on buying more time for yourself, on education. And you also talk earlier in the book about how somebody explained to you that you needed to have a sinking fund when you needed to buy replace your car. How do you talk about money to your clients? How do you explain this philosophy or, or, or explain the philosophy to the to the listeners? Okay. Well, so let's first of all, we have to clarify a little bit. Now we're talking about a different book, not the little book of Sideways Market. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We're talking yeah, about no, no, that's, that's fine. A, your new yeah, my, book, which uh, let me just introduce your new book. So your new okay. book is called Soul in the Game, The Art of a Meaningful Life. And it's a brilliant book. And I was telling Vitaly before we came on that his book is published by Harriman House and Craig Pierce is, is his editor, who also was my editor. And I had lunch with Craig, who asked me, well, Steve, what's your second book going to be about? And I said, well, I thought my second book might be not about money and about finance. And he said, oh, no, we would never publish that. But you managed to persuade them to publish your book. And the book is great. And it's probably better than my book will be about, not about finance. But um, tell us about your philosophy towards money, because I think this is a really interesting so first of all, I, like let's make this clear. I'm I spend very little time 
talking to my clients about personal finance because that's not what we do. Like, you know, the, okay. But, um, but let me tell you about in general, my uh, kind of finance, personal finance uh, philosophy. Well, I think the, let's start with this. Money buys the most when it buys things you value. Yep. Not every hundred dollar created equal or every hundred pound in your case. Um, Because, Hundred pounds to buy things you don't want or don't care about are don't buy as much when buy something you care about. So the problem is we go through life and a lot of times our financial our spending is done in a very mindless way because it's just one of the things we do and it's kind of you know we get a paycheck and we spend money. Um, what I argue you for money to buy you the most you need to mindfully approach the subject. How do you do this? You start with budgeting. And budgeting, you know, anybody who's listening you know, knows the concept. And, uh, and I'll, I'll start with a simple one, but I add some layers on top of that. Simple budgeting, you have your, you look how much income you make, and then you look at the expenses that you can see. Your cable bill, your mortgage, your car insurance, all these things. Things you can see you know, on, your, on your credit card bill every year, uh, every month. Now, the, I would add to it that there's a lot of expenses that you don't see on a monthly credit card bill that happen on a semi-regular basis, just not monthly. And some expenses has not have not happened yet, but will happen to you. Your daughter will get married, okay, in 10 years. Therefore, you need to pay for that wedding. So you need to start saving money for that now. Uh, you are, you're gonna need to buy another car in five years again. That's an expense that's going to happen in five years. So you can, if you figure out how much it would cost you a month to save for that, that should go in your budget. And things like that, okay? By doing this, what you're doing, you're taking future expenses, you know, bringing them into the present, okay? By the way, your retirement is the same thing, okay? And the reason we're doing this, because I would argue you want to spend as little money as possible on interest expense. Because the power of the, the power of compounding works both ways. If you if you're borrowing money, it's actually it's working against you. Um, so it's a, it's obviously fine to borrow you know, to borrow money for, you know for your mortgage, etc. Uh, a reasonable amount of money, uh, but at the same time, you probably don't want, don't want to live on credit cards, you know, and you don't want to buy you know. And uh, so, why are we talking about this? Because once you created the budget, once you created uh, you look create all the lines of your spending. Now you you ask yourself a question: Which item do I value the most? Which uh, item I value the least? This is the key, because you find that you say you go to Starbucks once a day uh, and you spend twelve hundred dollars a year on the Starbucks, and then ask yourself a question: Do I actually enjoy Starbucks that's this much? Is it twelve? You know, do I actually? Maybe enjoy two hundred dollars, you know, as much, not twelve hundred dollars as much, and because no matter how much money you make, you either make a uh, fifty thousand dollars or five million dollars, you can always spend more than you make, okay? And so, the it, so what you, you know budget is basically prioritize prior. God, I can't say the word prioritizing. Prioritizing tool. Thank you. Prioritizing tool to for you to say I like travel more than like Starbucks. Yep. Therefore, I'm going to have to give up Starbucks so I can travel more. And uh, that's basically, and for, but by the way, for each one of us, it's going to be different. Like I'll give you, for me, this is a completely personal and it, I'm not saying 
this is what it should be for you or somebody else. But I value um, travel experiences. I value uh, health. Uh, I value uh, time. And I value education. So when I say this, what does it mean? Well, so in those categories, my my budget is much looser. So it's a it's a larger portion of my you know of my spending, but and now so now you think okay this is the wealthy guy money manager in Denver. Well, guess what? I live in the same house you know we bought twenty years ago. For a long time, I've been driving you know same car for you know almost ten years. My wife been driving the same car for thirteen fourteen years. So it's a we for us to travel more we uh, gave up on, on a larger house, on new cars. So th- those are, you know, sacrifices, not a big, you know, it's kind of, is a somewhat overstatement, but those are the things we had to give up, you know, to, to get other things. Now, like, you know, you know like I, in the book, I talk about my tra- my, my trainer. Yeah, you know, so my trainer lives in a small apartment, has a roommate, he's, he's divorced, but, and he's not making a lot of money. And uh, he loves, you know, he loves, you know, he likes two activities the most. He loves traveling and he likes cars. So every three years he leases a new car. And uh, and when in uh, once or twice a month, he travels somewhere in the country. But when he travels, he stays, he stays in very cheap hotels. He eats out in a very smartly. So, but so he's, so he's given up. You know, so he doesn't. When he's in Denver, he doesn't go out much, so he doesn't spend much on food. He also doesn't. Uh, he also lives in a very modest apartment, but he's, that's what he's given up to travel and you know, and to buy a new car, to lose a new car every three years. Because this is in in the United States in particular, it's a society in which everybody seems to be happy to borrow. I mean, it's partly true in this country as well. And people, I don't think, pay sufficient attention to what they really want. That's so, what you're saying, right? Yeah, no, I mean, like, if you think about it, what money is supposed to do after you paid for your kind of basic needs, it's really just supposed to buy you freedom. Yes. Like freedom to make choices. What we do by borrowing money excessively, we give up freedom. And, um, and uh, so this is why... You know, this is why I'm not quite a minimalist. Uh, like in a sense, my house does not look like this uh, Japanese, you know, kind of Japanese minimalistic house. But I I get a lot more enjoyment out of relationship and out of experiences than I get from buying things. Well, I think, I mean, I think most people, most people do. I mean, obviously, you know, people have different priorities when it comes to spending money. But let's just turn to the book and your philosophy of life. I mean, for the, my first question about the book was, you've got the most amazing reviews from the most amazing people. General Stanley McChrystal, Morgan Housel, Bill Miller, Jim Chanos, and Rolf Dobelli, who is one of my heroes. I think he's one of the most brilliant, brilliant writers. Do you know all these people personally? I mean, how did you manage to do all that? Um, so, okay, so let me put it this way. For me to get these endorsements, I had to have a good book. Like, and I, and I, and I, and I, and, I, and, I, and, the, and this point is very important. Um, so I know some of them, some of, some of them I know very well. Some of them I know, uh, you know, kind of uh, had a conversation or two in my lifetime. Uh, some of them I've never met. Like I'll give you one example, General McChrystal. I never met in my life. I 
heard his interview on Tim Ferriss's podcast. Which and is brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and I really liked him. As it just, I, I just, I could, I could, I could really relate to him as a human being. And I emailed him. I said, "Here is my book. You know, I just, I just finished the book. Here's the manuscript. I would love to get your endorsement." And so he asked. You know, he emailed me back the next day. He said, "What's your deadline?" I said, "I need to, in two weeks." He's like, "I'll read it. However, if I don't like it, I'll tell you. If I don't like it, I'm not going to endorse it. And if I like it, you know, I may endorse it." So that was that was his response. So, so this is why having a good book again is a oh, prerequisite. Is a prerequisite for that. I got an email back maybe within a week, and he said I was on the train, and so I had some extra time, and you know I, I, I read your book and I loved it. And it wasn't just like it was a very lengthy email, kind of he describing how how he could how he relates to it, etc. And he provided this wonderful blurb. That was that's. Like this is a kind of an example of person I did not know. Some people, as you know, like some people I knew much better, you know, like well, uh, or I've met at least. And um, and they, but again, they read the book, you know. And if they did not like the book, you know, they would not have provided the blurb. So, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, look, I, of course, it's a great book. I mean, uh, but I just no. Okay. My, my point is, like, let me, let me, I guess, let me, let me just like, let me go to the punchline. The punchline is this. If you're creating a product or a service, you need two things. You need a good product and you need luck. And you need to create your, your luck. So in other words, even if I did not know a lot of people, you know, if I did not know some of the people, I would still have enough blurbs in this book from the people I did not know because I just reached out to complete strangers, being vulnerable, saying, here's what I wrote. Would you look at it? And that's it. That's an act of vulnerability, by the way, because I'm basically, you know, kind of. I can. I could. I could get a no. And by the way, I did get plenty of no's. No's meaning like I don't have time for this. You know, kind of thing. I don't think I had a single person who said, who read it and said, "I'm not going to endorse it." Any person who has uh, endorsed it. I, because I, I'm amazed that um, somebody like General McChrystal would have time on a two-week deadline, because I I got sent your book. I mean, months ago, and Barbara, your PA, we and I put this date in the diary, and I've got a lot. I've got a very high reading pile, and it's quite a big book. I didn't want to take it on holiday with me because it's heavy, and so I got back from holiday. And I was thinking, oh man, this is a disaster because I've got this interview, and I haven't read the book. And very luckily, last weekend, a friend called me up and he said, "I've got a spare ticket for Goodwood." I don't know if you've heard of Goodwood, but it's a uh, um, it's a, the Goodwood Revival meeting is uh, back to the 1960s motor racing festival. Oh, cool. Where all the cars are old cars. So they race old oh. cars. And I, I, it's a great event. And I normally go to a, a super friend of mine who has become a recluse since COVID and didn't want, didn't want to go. And so what I did was instead of driving, because it's a nightmare, because the traffic is, is horrible, I took the train and I read your book on the train down and on the train back and you know i i read almost all of it and it was it was it was really i really enjoyed it and it of course made my my journey um <laughs> an awful lot an awful lot easier so because, you and general mccrystal have something in common you both read my book on a train all right yeah well that that probably is about the only thing i've got in common with them but i've been trying to persuade my 13 year old that because General McChrystal says that you should, the first thing he does in the morning is he makes his bed. 
And I can't get my 13-year-old to make his bed. Just got no interest in making his bed. And I was hoping that would inspire him. But maybe I think, I- you know, you know I, I have a strategy for you. General McChrystal is not the person to use. You got to use Wim Hof because Wim Hof was one of the endorsers as well. And Wim, uh, and Wim is a, for a 13-year-old, Wim Hof, who set 25 uh, world records, you know, doing things in the, in the cold temperature, he would be so much more impressive for your 13-year-old, trust me. Uh, so the Jeremy Crystal is a, just you know, a little bit too old for 13-year-old. Uh, so I think you know, Wim Hof would be more appropriate. Well, my, cool. my, my, my son is actually, you know, he's very interested in the military. So I was hoping that. Oh, I see. I see, I see. But, I see. You know, I'll, I'll try that. I'll try that example. I mean, the, the funny thing um, in, in, in the book, you, you talk about a very painful experience about losing your mother at quite a young age, but that it make bringing you closer to your father. And yeah. you obviously have an incredibly close family. Would you mind sharing? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I I lost my mother when I was my mom got sick when I was ten and she died you know five months later when I was eleven at the time and the at the time I didn't realize it but losing my mother basically made me value my father so much more because I realized that at some point I'll lose him too you know and um, and that was kind of ingrained into me since very young age. So I always, and you know, and just to make it clear, I, my father made it so easy for me because he's it was he's a, such a wonderful human being. So I, even in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s, I, I intentionally would go out, like when I already moved out and had my family, I would intentionally take time to spend time with him. I would go uh, to his house for breakfast. We would go for morning walks. We would travel to Europe, we would to South Africa, we would drive to Santa Fe together. That that is a there is a, you know you know it's kind of interesting. If I rewrote this book today, one of the central concepts in the book would be scarcity. Like when you like like living in the United States and um, we kind of uh, we treasure abundance, and I would argue the the scarcity is this you know and and I understand why right because hundred years ago two hundred years ago. All the experience in life was scarcity, right? There was not enough food. There was not enough food. You know, we worked these insane hours. We lived in this ungodly conditions, etc. Today, therefore, we kind of uh, put abundance in this kind of super, you know, um, super aspirational things what we want. But the problem is abundance is that you usually don't value things, like you live at you know. So um, when I realized that. When you realize you have a scarcity of time, when you when you realize, and that's probably one of the most scared. That's a in scarce constant for everybody. We all may have different wealth, different health, but we all have the same amount of time. You know, it's a you know, and therefore, um, I appreciate the scarcity made me appreciate my kids so much more, because I know that they'll grow up, and they'll leave my house, and then. Instead of seeing my like when my son lived with us, now he's in the in college, I spent four or five hours a day with him. Now I spend two hours a, a week at the most. Okay, and so what? So today, and this is very important because today when I drive my daughters to school and they are eight and sixteen, especially the sixteen-year-old, I realize that I only have about four hundred more times I'm going to drive my sixteen-year-old daughter to school. 
So that's changed my perspective because now every time I drive her, I look at it as an um, I look at it as a privilege, as an opportunity, not a chore. And suddenly, when I'm in the car with her, I'm not listening just to another podcast. I'm not talking to on the phone to a friend, etc. I'm spending time with my girls, and I pay attention to them, and I'm mindful. I'm 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 being present, and. It's the concept of scarcity. It's this you know, kind of realization of scarcity that brings me closer to them. It's a great um, thing. And, you know, some of the comments you make in the book about, you know, being a parent, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because there's nothing prepares you. And, you know, having parents yourself, obviously everybody has parents, although they may not know them, um, has a tremendous influence on your own relationship with your own children. And that can be a good thing or it can be a, a bad thing. Obviously, for you, it's been a really, um, really super experience. Um, but it, it's it's very funny because anybody who's got children understands this, how no. difficult the relationship can be and how it's so the most precious thing and how to make the most of it. And that's a great comment about the scarcity. I, um, I was talking to Herb Greenberg um, a couple of months ago, I was telling him that, you know, we were going to have this conversation. And he said, oh, yeah, because Herb, obviously, I, I, I don't know how old you are, but I would guess there's 15 years between you. 20. And Herb said, oh, yeah, he's got a wise head. He's got like, he's got my age, in, but in a younger body sort of thing, <laughs> which I thought was a very funny and very, very true, very flattering um, comment. Listen, it's kind of funny. I, I Herb read my book like, uh, like a, it wasn't quite a draft, but it was already almost a done version. And he said, you know, he said when he agreed to read it, he said, I, oh, no, when I asked him to read it, I just want to get his feedback. He said, I don't know if I have time to read it because I'm in the process of launching this new business. So I, I just don't know if I get to it. And then he comes back to me literally uh, maybe less than a week. He said, I read it almost in one sitting. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't put it down. And he said, "I this funny thing happened. I go around talking to my wife, and now I keep quoting your book all the time." Oh, really? I'm... Yeah, it was, you know. And I've known her for a long, long time, probably for eighteen years or so. And he's a phenomenal, phenomenal, kind, generous human being. So, uh, you know, so I'm kind of hearing it from him and somebody I really greatly, greatly admire. So, hearing it from him really kind of, you know, melted my heart a little bit. Have you sent the book to your clients? Yeah, yeah. No, we sent it to every client. You know, we sent it to every client, and uh, and uh, yeah, you know, so far, you know, it was a very good feedback. Oh, good. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure. You wrote that COVID was a, a big opportunity for you to reorganize your working environment. What What did you change? So. At first, COVID was not a good. You know, at first, COVID was not good for me. Not like for like. Let me just put it this way. I, I say this, and I feel like my life was impacted the least in general, right? Because everybody at my firm can work remotely, so we didn't have to be in the office. So we had zero interruption with the business. Um, and what I found, especially the first months of COVID, I work from home all the time. And when I work from home, especially like all these crazy things were happening and I had to read a lot. I had to, you know, research new companies, try and try and figure out what we're going to do. And in addition to this, during COVID, especially first two months, I wrote like where I usually write three to four times a year to clients, I wrote once a week 
because like again i had to bring them closer to the cockpit um so um but what happened like normally i had when i went to the office i had this i had a routine and this routine got completely screwed up by covid because i was working from uh, out of my home i went to sleep late i got up late because i worked long hours just i i didn't i didn't you know aside from writing letters to my clients i didn't write much um so it was i was a complete complete mess i just didn't realize it at the time so i didn't have this self awareness actually i would argue to recognize this and then recognize that i gained weight i don't feel good i just i'm a mess because and then, then what happened i realized what happened i completely gave up my good habits all the habits i worked very hard to develop for years i completely abandoned them because my routines have changed so i actually had to rebuild my habits and uh so uh the so i started getting up early and you know early in the morning walk in the park i uh, you know we bought a rowing machine for home because i couldn't work out as as my trainer and uh i kind of rebuilt my habits but i also realized that the way i worked in the past when i had to go to the office i don't have to work that way i don't have to sit in front of you know i don't um and this actually especially this is not quite fair to everybody because i own the firm i can set my own schedule but even then if i i have more flexibility than anybody else but i was behaving as if i didn't uh so so today um like uh today like i'll give you i'll give you a couple examples like on wednesdays this is my day when i never like i don't know if you ever tried to schedule an appointment with me on wednesday it's impossible because on wednesday my day is completely blacked out i can do whatever i want like i uh last you know a few months i just on wednesdays i be just i have this friend we go to lunch we have a 3 or 4 hour lunch and we just talk it's like it's a like this is me trying to be european like you know kind of kind of trying <laughs> to slow down time but you know a lot of times i just go to the i just go to the park and I sit and read in the park on, on on wednesdays that is my time that is the time that i don't owe to the family to ima that is my time um because who said that we have to work 40 hours a week even if you do 8 hours a day because i you know i you know i my my day starts at 5 in the morning and i usually go home at 3 uh you know sometimes i work on weekends sometimes i don't it's it, like investment business is not a kind of ideas per hour and the more you work it doesn't necessarily lead to more outcome because when i'm tired and working my comprehension declines a lot uh a, a lot and well i also found that for instance it's also how smart you work like in the morning i don't like the reason you and i actually have an interview today you know in the like the time we are you know we are having which is at 11 o'clock my time i never do this i rarely do this the only reason we're doing this because you know with time zone difference yeah normally we don't schedule a podcast interview until 1 o'clock and there is a good reason for that because i am extremely protective with my time until one, until 1 o'clock i don't do phone calls with clients or anybody um so uh you know so i try to work smart when and i when i realize if you're if you're a morning person you should protect the morning time if you're an evening person then you should protect that evening time and uh so that's anyway so those are kind of some of the takeaways uh from uh, from pandemic it's a bit like the the Dan Pink book when i don't know if you read that where he talks about you know everybody's got a natural rhythm you're mm-hmm. a morning person you're an evening person you should 
organize your life around that. Obviously, you've got the luxury of being able to do that. And I, as I do, because I'm self-employed and I can set my own times. And interestingly, I mean, I take Fridays off. So I've no, I never have any meetings on a Friday. And the one thing I, the one thing I do do every Friday, which you'll laugh about is I have a Zoom meeting with a friend who's got a robotics business in Eastbourne in the south coast of, of England and a psychologist in Chicago. And the three of us write together on a Friday afternoon. And it's, I mean, it's, it sounds like a weird thing, but it's very, it, it's very creative because we How do, do you write together things. How do you write together? Because I like the, the writing together to me, are almost like the, we, we discuss what we're going to, what we're going to do. And uh -huh. I often will turn up on a Friday with nothing, nothing in my head. And just talking, listening to what they're talking about, I'll come up with an idea. And then you... And then I'll go and write, and we write, and then at, we write for an hour, an hour and a quarter, and then we spend 15 minutes at the end discussing each other's pieces. Oh, I love so it. We haven't written a finished product, but we've written, you know, maybe an email. Typically, it'll be a, an email to, you know, like the emails you send out each week. I send out an email each week. And I might not have finished it all, but when you then, when somebody else reads it, they go, oh, why don't you change that word? Or that sentence doesn't make sense. And it's, in, it, it's incredibly productive. It's a really good, it's a really good system. See, and that's, and see, that's the thing. Like, I could not do what you do. Like, like, and I, and, but I'm not criticizing this. I'm quite the opposite. I could not do what you do, but yeah, I don't have, it's, but it, what you do has to work for you. And I think the key to what I'm saying is you need to figure out what works for you. And so when you when 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 people listen to this and watch this, and they, they're like, oh, Vitaly gets up at five o'clock in the morning, so I should do the same thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you need to figure out mindfully what works for you. How like you analyze yourself as if you were an outsider and say, if you could, if somebody else could manage you, how could you get the, you know, the most out of you? Okay. And then you find out, like, you know, by the way, the same applies to my to my people at IMA. They all work differently and they they all get to choose what works for them the best. And uh so, but you need to figure out what works for you. And for you, like, you know, the writing together works. For me, it would not work. And so what? Well, you, you know, don't know, you're not trying it. That's very true. Very, very true. It's, uh, it's, I mean, I was quite surprised actually, but I, I, I kind of, I like for me, writing is very meditative experience and just like this date with a computer for two hours a day in the darkness, like uh, with my headphones on, listening to music. That's, I, I, I kind of learned to appreciate that and to love that. Could I, could I do this differently? Maybe. But I'm I'm in love. Why change? Like it's like oh no, you, I'm in love. Why change? So that's that's. But again, that's that's me. And I listen to classical music. Some people say there is no way I could write with classical music on. And fine, listen to different music. Don't listen to music. We um we listen. Kurosh is a musician as well as being a psychologist, and he chooses the he chooses the music. So we get a very wide selection, including quite a lot of classical. That's great. Now. You are an advocate of perpetual learning. And interestingly, the, the guest on my podcast this month in 
we're recording this in September, is Sir Clive Woodward, the manager of the England rugby team. And he is an absolute advocate of this perpetual learning. He said, there isn't, I, I would get on a plane to anywhere to learn something. Just talk a little bit about why you believe this is so important and how do you implement it in practice? Because you're a busy guy, right? I mean, you're getting up at five o'clock in the morning. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but I, here's the thing. Like the, this is kind of the beauty of being an investor. Like if you think about investing, it's really, it's a, in investing, that's what that's all you do is learn, yeah. right? That's just that's number one. Number two, but I think it's almost almost like a state of mind. It's something you train yourself. Kind of, I had to train myself. That is a, uh, especially being a writer helped me to kind of get in the state of mind because I always look at something as a possible story. Um, let me tell you the story. This is uh, I'm taking chess lessons because I decided that I decided that. Like uh, we usually spend a lot of time working out our body, our muscles, right? But I've, I realized as you get older, you also need to make sure that your the most important muscle, your brain, also gets to work out. And so I started taking chess lessons because first of all, I love I love chess, and second of all, I realized this is probably one of the most intense uh, mental exercises you can do. Um, and so the if you presume that I'm Russian, you know, I was born in Russia, so I should be very good at chess. Well, not really. I mean, I, I was born in Russia and I was introduced to chess in a young age, but I haven't really played seriously throughout my life. I mean, I mean I've mean, i played throughout my life, but not very seriously. Played with my kids. My kids now play chess better than I do. You know, they, they, you know they, my daughter, my 16-year-old, you know, kills me in chess. Now, so I decided I'll, t- I'll take a chair. I'm going to have a teacher. And... Um, my teacher, like in chess, the ratings are like Magnus Carlsen is rated 2,800. Okay. The chess beginner is rated 400. Okay. Like probably uh, 99% of people in the world who play chess are rated below 1,700. Okay. So my teacher is he's rated about 2,300, which is very high. Yeah. Okay. But here's the interesting part. He told me that he got to the level now where he stopped enjoying playing chess as much because he's not progressing. Uh, he got to the level where there's very little progress. And I realized how lucky I am. I am I'm coming from such a low level that for me, there's so much, the, 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 the area of my ignorance is so high that there is a, there's so much I can learn. And this is exactly how I look at this. So instead of me trying to say, I wish I was like him, now I'm thinking I'm so lucky I'm not him because I get to learn. <laughs> so that is that is the mental attitude I have towards learning. And um, obviously, some subjects, if you some subjects are more interesting to me than others, but I still try to have an open mind, even the subjects that may not appear interesting to me, because you may get surprised how things that that are so mundane there is a mental model that's buried that's buried in it that I can take from that subject and bring it to something something else. Now, before we finish, and I I should have said to you at the beginning, I didn't say, I I mean, I often ask people to recommend a book, but when I've had an author on, I usually ask them to recommend their own book, but if you've got a book in mind. But before we do that, um, can we just touch briefly on two subjects I know very dear to your heart? One is art and one is classical music. And your father is a professional artist, is that right? And your brother is an artist. Yeah, uh, my father 
It's kind of interesting. My father was, until he was 58 years old, a professional teacher. He yeah. was a he was a professor at university in uh in Russia. He told he has a PhD in electrical engineering, and he painted all his life because he just loved painting. When he moved to United States, he, like it's very difficult to, at 58 years old to learn English good enough to you know to teach. So what he did, he kind of he took his hobby and turned it into profession. So until you know five, six, seven years ago, he was selling his paintings. He doesn't do this anymore. And so that was his, you know, that was that's how he earned his living. Um, my brother is a professional realtor, but he loves to paint, and uh, so he he uh, he does it as a hobby. Yeah, and so I was not, I, I don't, I don't have a gift of uh, painting, uh, but uh, unfortunately, I wish I, did. I, I, you know, I wish I was gifted that way, but I'm not. Yeah, it's um, it's annoying, isn't it? Because I love art as well. Do you have a favorite museum? I mean, when you come, yeah. To so they, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So the like my one of my favorite museums is actually in Zurich. Uh, they have this uh, called Kunsthaus, I think. Uh, uh, it's a they just have a beautiful, uh, uh, beautiful uh, collection of impressionists. And I also, you know, like I love to go to the. You know, every time I'm in New York, I take my kids to the Metropolitan Art Museum, and we usually go to the uh, impressionist uh, section, and we go to the uh, Flemish section, you know, and you know, and so usually, you know, when I go to, you know, I usually spend about two hours, an hour and a half at the Metropolitan Art Museum. Uh, so I, and I, I love art, but I, I, I would argue that I love uh, paintings less. Than, like it's all relative than classical music. Uh, so I, and I truly like, this is like one of those loves that I, you know, I listen to classical music every day for several, you know, more than a few hours a day. And I enjoy every second of it. And I would like, if I, like, here's a, here's the interesting way. So I feel like if you have to, if I, if I face the dilemma, if I had to give up my eyesight or my hearing, that would be very, very difficult. You know, I would probably, you know, give up my eyesight for my hearing, you know. Oh, really? That's very, very interesting. I don't know if you ever read a book by a Portuguese author um, um, whose name will escape me, but I'll put it in the show notes, called Blindness. And he mm -hmm. envisages uh, a society in which there's been this disease in which everybody goes blind. And there are only a few people that have eyesight. And it's the most horrific book. Jose Saragamo, I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Very, uh, it's a very good book. You might change your mind about that. But you've also tried to instill your love for classical music in your children. And I love art, but I found it very difficult to persuade my children that they should love art. How do you? How have you done that? You, you, you I mean, you just take them to museums to, in the case of art, or show them stuff. But in the case of classical music, you can have it playing all the time. Is it easier to to do that? So it's a good question. So with art, I think I had a secret weapon, which is my father. My 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 kids adore my father, and you know, uh, and therefore, like we would go to Santa Fe, uh, and we go to Santa Fe every year. And my father, and in Santa Fe, they have this street called Canyon Road, and imagine like a sleepy neighborhood. Where they take every house that used to be a house and now convert convert into a gallery, 
there's I don't know a few hundred galleries, you know, or, you know, and and we would go from in the, in the morning, I don't know, nine or ten in the, you know, in the morning, and walk down the street from going from gallery to gallery. And my father would tell my kids about you know discoveries and paintings. And I tell you this, that is a, such a special time for my kids because you know the you know the grandpa who they respect tremendously and love dearly shares with them. They you know kind of makes them see art differently. And now, even when we travel without my father and we would go to an art museum, like we would go to New City, and for us, going to an art museum is just something we do. It's not it's like not something we discuss, something we just do. And you would argue that um, like this is like, but the, it's always followed by something like what's considered to be universally fun. We go, to, you, know, to, you know, to get sushi, we go to Dairy Queen or do something that's considered to be universally Fun for younger generation, and that's how I always mix that. So, like when we go to classical music concert, we then you know, and after that we're gonna go out for burgers or before that or something like that. So, my so there's a it's kind of it's a mixture of like. And by the way, the, my parents did the same thing when I was little. We would go to they would take me to uh, classical music concerts, and in the intermission they would buy me some sweets. Yeah, and so. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm making my dentist very happy, um, but uh, this is how I kind of get my kids to. Um, so it's it's very it's, it's, you can't force anybody to love anything. No, but but what you can do, what you can do, you can kind of introduce it to them. Okay, and I you know and I, and so in classical music, I would argue is a you know especially classical music, it's a very complex medium, which has a lot of layers. So when you listen to it for the first time, you usually get the top layer, and the top layer a lot of times it doesn't have the beauty. The beauty is actually five layers lower, but for you to hear the beauty, you need to hear it, if you know, half a dozen times. So by me playing this music on the background very often, my kids get to kind of, you know, kind of get through those layers little by little. And is there a book you would recommend to someone thinking of becoming an investor? You've I mean, written two yourself. That would be yeah. No, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna recommend my books. I can. I've did plenty of this during the show already. Um, <laughs> uh, let me see some good some good books. Like you know what? Actually, yes. Um, William Green just did the wonderful book, uh, "Richer, Wiser, Happier." I would, uh, you know, and I think that's a terrific book, and I highly recommend it. No, that's a um, good recommendation. The the one book I really enjoyed uh, by a row of the belly, actually the. Um, the Art of the Good Life. I thought it was a terrific book because what it does, it has a 52 little chapters and uh, they all just like, it's kind of like in the hindsight, I didn't realize it when I wrote my book, but it's a kind of similar. Uh, this, this has a lot of short chapters and you can read one chapter at a time and it's self-contained. And his book is kind of like that as well. So The, the, the Art of the Good Life. I've, funnily enough, I've got that on on my nightstand and um i've been reading it um for quite a while just picking up and because it's that nice thing that you can just pick up just when you want to read just one chapter so that's great and tell me um you've got a a website with your writing a website on classical music could you just tell the listeners yeah. where they can find sure sure so i'll give you several websites number one if you want to learn about classical music if you just want to get a curated list of classical music, go to myfavoriteclassical.com. Um, if you want to learn, so the, uh, Steve, what happens is that after I wrote the book, I couldn't stop writing. 
And I keep writing. So I since the book came out, I already wrote five chapters, new chapters, and I'm working on the sixth one. So you can get those chapters absolutely free once you buy the book. If you go to soulinthegame.net, soulinthegame.net, and you can also subscribe to my articles from that website. So you can get my articles where I talk about life, classical music, investing, different topics. And finally, we have a podcast. And the podcast is basically my articles read to you. I'm not, you know, I don't have a, I don't, I don't interview guests, et cetera. I don't uh, do anything specifically for it. It's say my articles read to you, luckily, not by me. And you can, it's called the Intellectual Investor. Um, podcast. You can find it anywhere you can listen to podcasts or you just go investor.fm. That's it. That's brilliant. Listen, thank you so much for doing this. It's been really a pleasure. It's been so, so much fun reading the book and so much fun talking to you. I'm Absolutely. looking forward to your coming back to London and taking advantage of the, as we as we're recording this, the dollar is pound rate is about 107 or if you're a PayPal user trying to transfer dollars into sterling 116, thanks, PayPal. Um, so you really need to come over. And, you know, London is so enjoyable at $1.07 for, for Americans. As you, as, you, as you and I talked, like when I was in London, 19, I think 1997, I think the pound was a two. So it, and I, at the time I was just starting my career, and it was a lot of money. Like so, the like we would go to McDonald's and everything seemed like if you convert to US dollars, seemed like twice as expensive. So I had to imagine that it wasn't really the, the prices were not in pounds, but in US dollars. So now I don't have to. My imagination does not have to be as rich oh, as it was then. You're you're laughing. I mean, I had the reverse experience. We were in restaurants in the states. So I was in America in August, and we're restaurants in the states, and you know the price. Is in pounds because by the time you've added twenty percent service, it was one twenty when I was there, and so it was just in pounds, and, and it was and it was quite frightening. There was one thing I just wanted to ask you about before we go, because you yeah. in the book you keep explaining that you're having terrible experiences with rental cars. You say when you go to the rental car desk and they don't and you don't get an upgrade, have you had like a really bad experience? Because I've had a really bad experience with Hertz, where I've been a uh, massive customer for many many years and i got ripped off when i was renting a car and returned early and they charged me twice the price and i wrote to the hertz people i mean it, it, absolutely impossible i eventually ended up writing to the ceo in america and they offered me a voucher which was like a third of the what 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 it cost me and i thought oh but have you had the same was it hertz tell me it was hertz that you had the same uh, i i'll be honest i like like I had a I rent a car, best rental car experience with almost probably every rental car company there is. And and the thing is, it's really what I learned from that is that it's really up to me to interpret it as a bad experience or as a learning experience. Uh, so today I, I today I put it proudly in a in kind of a learning experience. Uh but you know, in the book I had to use something, yeah, I had to you know come back to something. So that was my that was my go-to because that's probably the most universal bad character. You know, bad ex when we have bad experiences, most can relate to it. Yes. Uh, so, uh, well, thank you so much for being on, and I'm looking forward for us meeting up in London. Absolutely, Steve. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You know, I don't think Vitali does anything without thinking really carefully about it. His life philosophy, the idea that time is scarce 
is a really powerful idea and his habit of framing things in a positive way is an approach we can all learn from. I hope you enjoyed it and took something from it. Thanks as ever for listening and for your support. This podcast is aimed at serious and aspiring equity investors. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And please check out our other great content on the website, BehindTheBalanceSheet.com. Did I mention the free Substack? Thanks for listening. And the podcast is now also available on Amazon Music.